Hello and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. On today's podcast, we're honored to have Dale Tutt, Vice President of Aerospace and Defense Industry Strategy at Siemens. Welcome to the podcast, Dale. Hey, thanks a lot, Grayson. I'm happy to be here. Oh, we're super happy to, uh, to have you here. Growing up, you used to build model airplanes and visit air shows with your parents. What initially started your interest in aerospace? Well, I think, you know, when I was uh, very young, uh, you know, a little too young to, to remember the very first moon landing. But, uh, you know, as, a, as, as, you know, first, second grade, I was, uh, they were still landing on the moon. Uh, that's when, you know, Skylab was going up and then the space shuttle started. So I, I think I just, I started out with this interest in space and I've always loved airplanes and, and, uh, you know, so it just, it all kind of tied together. And, 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 uh, you know, I think that was really what generated my initial interest in aerospace, uh, was really seeing a lot of the moon landings and, and, and the early, uh, space ex- activity and exploration and even programs like Voyager and, and some of the other programs that, that were going to the other planets. So that's just fascinating to me. Did those fascinations lead to your interest in Star Trek and Star Wars, which in a previous interview you call cool? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, you know, I think that it was just space was the big thing and, and uh, that was easy to, uh, to flow right into those and imagine that you're Captain Kirk or something. So <laughs> when do you think that we're going to see some of those technologies evolve and kind of send humans back to the moon? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think that's going to happen pretty soon here. It's uh, they're making good progress with uh, with the current space effort. And, and you know, I think they're still targeting a 2024 uh, return to the moon, which which I think is 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 a great goal. And, and the, the technology exists today and it's being demonstrated, like with the recent SpaceX launch. You know, I think that, you know, the, then the fact that you also have private and private companies investing and talking, you know, Elon, you know, Elon Musk talking about going to the moon, going to Mars. And, you know, the, the, the thought, you know, just think 20 years ago that someone would have talked about a private company going to Mars and not NASA or, you know, one of the gov- big government agencies. Uh, it probably was unheard of. But uh, now there's so much in- investment. And there's so much interest in it. I think that you'll see it pretty soon. And a lot of the technologies, are, you know, there's a lot of the technologies that are there right now. With these new with these new technologies, will we be able to get to the moon faster than it, it took um, Neil Armstrong and the crew to get there? Well, I don't think so. I think the, the current model is to still really follow the same path you, I'm going to say, coasting uh, to space once you, you know, once you get out of Earth's grap- you know, out, out of the uh, atmosphere and out of the gravitational pull. So I think initially, it's, you know, I don't see a, a, a propelled uh, <laughs> trip to the moon anytime soon, just because of the amount of, you know, propellant that you're going to have to carry. But, uh, uh, you know, I think over time that might change as well as, you know, as, as people start looking at, um, you know, maybe commercial mining where you have, you take advantage of the materials up there. So, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of ideas out there. Uh, but, uh, you know, until you actually think of a way to continue to, you know, carry all those propellants up and, 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 and take them with you the whole ride, uh, you know, I think the, that that will probably still be the same technology, same same approaches as used before on the Apollo programs. And when we achieve reaching the moon again, do you think that it will become a common occurrence? It won't just be a once in a generation, once in two generations. Do you think it'll kind of be more of a, a common occurrence when NASA will continue to do research? I, I think so. It's and I, and that's the you know I think that's the current path that you see uh, NASA on right now with with the Gateway. Uh, you know that to have a, a consistent presence at the moon, even if it's at a, uh, you know, at a space station that is orbiting it, that, but that you'll start to see more regular travel back and forth from the moon. And, and I think the technology will change and continue to make that more, uh, more economical and more, more feasible. So I, I guess my sense is, is that when we go back into space, that we're going to, I'm sorry, when we go back to the moon, it, we're going to be there for good. And it's not, and it's going to be glo- a global effort. It's not going to be just, uh, just one country doing it. And it'll be private people doing it. Which is it's fascinating. And speaking of uh, private industry and regular travel, earlier in your career, you worked at Bombardier on the Lear 45 program. Yeah. Lear became synonymous with business jets and really changed the way that global business is done. When you started that program, did you have any idea that the positive impact that that would have on the world economy? Uh, you know, I, I think so. Um, so by the time I started there, you know, Learjets had been established for, 
uh, about 30 years. So Bill Lear had started the company in the mid sixties. And, and so I started at, at Bombardier in, 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 um, in, in the mid nineties. And so the Learjets were already established. And I think, you know, the idea of that was that it was almost, uh, the term Learjet was the generic name given to any business jet. And, and that, um, uh, you know, just like, you know, Kleenex that, that, you know, that, you know, the tissues became, you know, everyone calls them Kleenex. So we'd watch TV. We always laughed about it when I worked at Learjet that you'd watch TV and you'd see people go, oh, well, let's get in our Learjet and go to dinner in Paris. And, and then they'd hop in a Cessna or a Gulfstream or something else. And, 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 but that just, it, you know, how, how common that name and that recognition of, of that product became, uh, that it was, that it became the generic name for the industry for quite a while there. Did the Lear marketing team work on that? Say, okay, business executives go around and call this Lear. <laughs> I don't know. I doubt it. I think it was just, uh, it was an easy term. I mean, Bill Lear was really a trailblazer when he started all of that. He was a you know, fascinating man and quite an inventor and, and, uh, and, and, you know, moving to Wichita and, and, you know, developing it there. Uh, yeah, I, I think it just, it, it kind of happened somewhat naturally. It's, it's hard to say if there was any marketing, intentional marketing effort behind it. Did you ever have the opportunity to meet Bill Lear? I did not. No, no, that would have been, that would have been, that would have been interesting to, to, to have had a chance to meet him. I knew several guys that did and, 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 and then actually one, you know, Learjet was, a. Uh, you know, when they started it there, you know, I knew guys that were like employee number 28. Uh, so when Bill Lear started standing up the factory, you know, there was a joke about, well, they built it around so-and-so because, you know, he was the, you know, one of the first employees that worked the program. So a very dynamic person, very passionate about what he was doing there. That's for sure. And the, the passion seems to run really deep in aerospace now with uh, General Dynamics Gulfstream is gaining a significant market share. And now we have Arian supersonic jets, which... Um, according to public reports, they have quite a backlog. What are your thoughts on the future supersonic jets? Yeah, I think I think there's a great potential. It's the you know the thing that hasn't changed in the industry so much uh, has been the speed aspect of it. I, you know, when I first uh, and actually when I first started working for Cessna, I had an opportunity to fly one of our business jets down uh, to Phoenix, and and it was you know for. for for us, it was a business tool. We, you know, five or six of us could hop on an airplane. We could fly down to Phoenix. It was a little over a two-hour flight, and and then have a four or five-hour meeting, and then we could fly home and be home for dinner time. And the amount of money that we saved was just astronomical because we were only out of the office one day. And and so that that model works well, like you know, in the United States or maybe in in Europe or in within countries. And so I think with supersonic travel, that that what's going to be so appealing about it is it's now shortening. You know, time is money. And you're not going to be able to shorten that, that, that time of transit down to a more manageable uh, level. And, you know, now maybe business people start thinking about going, you know, New York to London and have a meeting and then fly back and, and, and make it become a one day trip. And so I, I do think that you're going to see continued growth in the supersonic jets. And I like what Arion is doing with it's they're, they're doing it they're, you know, their plan is a sustainable way. So they're being able to address you know, the speed concerns or the, the, the time concerns that the you know business people want to be more effective, more productive. Uh, but then they're also going to be, be doing it in a sustainable way. And I think that's a I think that's a great, great model. And will supersonic jets ever be able to fly over land or is it only going to have to be over which people commonly refer to the pond yeah. over the Atlantic or wide bodies of water? Yeah, no, I think I think the technology is getting close enough there. The plan is to be able to fly over land. You're flying high enough. Uh, that you know, once you get above a certain altitude, and the, with all the aerodynamics and the the simulation, the modeling, and everything that's going on around the design of the airplanes, uh, that you're now in a position where you'll be able to you know be able to fly over land because the the sonic boom that actually gets to the ground will be fairly muffled, and it'll maybe sound like a a car or train going by, not a, an airplane going boom boom. You know, so it's uh, uh, you know, I, I think I think so. I, I think it's got to it's going to have to be overland for it to really become commonplace. Will that sonic boom just be in one geographical area? Or will that follow the, the jet as, as it goes from, say, New York to L.A.? Yeah, technically, it's it, the 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 boom, you know, the even no matter how quiet it is, that that would trace the same basic flight path of the airplane. So it's, you know, as, as you're going past, it's this continuous wave. And uh, and so you would expect to see that basically follow the same flight path as the airplane. 
And as this mar- as the private jet market evolves, do you think it'll mostly be built on speed? And we saw uh, recently David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, just purchased two new jets and shareholders were questioning him. And he said, we need to be more efficient. We need to move our yeah. employees around the globe on our time. And you see Stephen Schwartzman, the chairman and CEO of Blackstone, is very public about how the private jet completely changed the game and how he's able to scale his business. Yep. And so those individuals, they don't log them as miles, they log it as hours. Yep. Do you think speed will be that big defining factor going forward in the future of private commercial aviation? Yeah, I, I think there, there there may actually end up being a couple of different factors. And, and so speed is certainly one of those factors. I mean, I think the business efficiency, the business effectiveness you get with the jets uh, is, is really critical for a lot of businesses. So it's not just getting your people to someplace faster. Some companies use them because maybe they're in a little bit remote location and so they send the jet out, they bring their customer in and they fly them in close to the airport. And so it minimizes their customer's time. So it's a business value again. And so speed is certainly going to be a big factor of it. But the speed really plays, you know, it's it's the most it's the speed is most valuable when you're doing like those long trips, the New York to Los Angeles or the London, you know, London to New York. Um, so then the model might shift a little bit that when you're, you know, if you're a company and you're flying, uh, say, from New York to um, you know, Chicago or Detroit, which is a shorter flight. I think this is where you're going to start to see some of the electric propulsion or the hybrid propulsion start to play more of a factor that it now changes the, it, it, that game. You can't save a lot of time by going really fast because you're climbing out, you're landing. And so now maybe you start to see some of the electric aircraft uh, that, that have a much different economic model so that it, it, it becomes a little bit of a trade-off on the longer trips. You want speed on the shorter trips. You might really just want economy. That's interesting. And you could almost see one of these larger air, airplane manufacturers saying, okay, if you buy our corporate jet, you can get X amount of hours on an electric one to go those short holes. Yeah. And that yeah. will be really interesting to see how much that evolves. Yeah. As these companies develop their jets, how much influence or guidance or research comes out of the DOD and that whole defense market. Is that technology kind of as it becomes public for civilians trickle down into the general aviation market? Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's certainly some of the technology trickles down, um, but you know people are kind of creative. And, and so once they see the technology, um, then they start to figure out ways to apply it commercially, or maybe they go develop it and it's not developed the same level of technology is maybe what the DOD would use. So, you know, I think about like some of these enhanced vision systems that are now on airplanes and night vision. Um, you know, obviously that was technology that was, you know, heavily used by the DOD for a long time on aircraft. And, and but then now civilian companies have started taking similar technology and they've started to develop some of that technology for themselves as well. And so um, I, I do think there's, whether it's a trickle down effect or whether it's a Hey, we can do that too. Uh, that certainly is influence. So as you see developments in DoD, you see um, uh, you see developments of commercial. And, and interestingly enough, I think you're starting to see it the other way as well. Technology, private investment is developing very quickly, and I think you now you start to see that as well, you know, making its way into the DoD because they're like, oh, we'd like that technology as well. So um, yeah, I think it goes both ways. And speaking of technology and products in the defense side of the business. While you were at Cessna, you led the Textron Airland Scorpion project. What was it like developing the ISR jet from design to production in just 23 months? Yeah, that's, uh, well, it's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, if you're, you know, when you're, when you're in the business and to be able to say that you had such a heavy influence on the design and you build a team and, you know, I was the first, I was like the first person that they hired on this program. And uh, so I got to build the team and, you know, we eventually had a couple hundred engineers and we had a, a couple hundred technicians. And, and so, you know, working with a team focused on this goal uh, is just, uh, it, it's an amazing feeling. And then to see it, it, you know, someone once when they were talking to me, they said, like, oh, is this your baby? I'm like, yeah, it's kind of like my baby, you know, and, uh, and, and you do, you, you, you get to see the whole process of how you start with this concept and you, 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 you know, take it to, you know, fruition and then to see it fly the first time. And it's just, it's hard to describe. It's, it's, there's no feeling like that. And, and, uh, and it feels like, uh, you know, it's a little bit of the pinnacle of your career sometimes that, uh, 
uh, certainly is very climatic experience for you. And, 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 you know, and then I talked to, you know, talked to our chief test pilot of, you know, when he for, first flew it and, and, and he said, you know, even for a, a pilot like that to, to, to be the first person to fly an airplane of that type, uh, is, uh, you know, not a lot of guys in his field get to experience that. And, uh, so it's, it, it's, uh, it's a really good feeling and, and, you know, but it's all about the people and, and how they work together and, you know, really just have the passion to get it done. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, and, uh, that was that program, you know, we, we, we were very groundbreaking. We, you know, did it in a very short period of time, you know, less than two years, uh, from a concept sketch to first flight. So we had a lot of fun with that. So it was good. And I'm going to offer the listeners a little, uh, fun insight about you, which I think is really cool. You're an instrument rated pilot. Yes. You were actually able to fly the Scorpion once. What, <laughs> yes. what was that like? Was that the pinnacle of your career? You're like, yes, this is the coolest thing ever. Well, I think, I, th I think it just kind of completes the circle for you. You know, it's, you, you, you had a heavy influence in the design. You got to lead the team. You had, you were involved in managing this program and, and, uh, maybe even helping to put it together a little bit. And then to actually get to fly it, it's just like, okay, now I've closed the circle. And it's like, okay, it's like, uh, what's left to do? <laughs> so I want to do it again now. <laughs> Go build another one, you know? So. Were you able to fly it again multiple times? No, I just, I just the one time. We, we, uh, we usually were very busy on flight test and, and uh, you know, uh, getting customers. And, and uh, you know, the chief engineer kind of has to take his priority where, where he can get it. <laughs> so so you, you take the plane up there. Were you able to put the plane to its maximum or did you fly it very conservatively? Or you're like, oh, this is a fun toy. We're going to see what she can do. Well, you know, it's unfortunately, I was, you know, you're with a good, you're, you're with a very experienced pilot and, and Dan is an ex, Dan was an excellent pilot. And, and so, uh, you know, I got to admit when I'm flying, I'm kind of like a little ginger with it and he goes, oh no, let's test it out. And so it's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, he, so he helped and, uh, you know, you kind of have that, uh, I'll say as a safety net, you can't, uh, he's, he's not going to let you do anything wrong. <laughs> so, and uh, did guy. you get this written into your contract when you were the first person hired? Uh, like, no, this no. Team, I get to fly. <laughs> I should have, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> and speaking of awesome experiences, what was it like when you first soloed a plane by yourself? Yeah, it's, um, that was a lot of fun. I was, uh, it was shortly, shortly after I started working at Cessna aircraft company, uh, you know, interestingly enough, they had a flying club and uh, made up of Cessna aircraft. So uh, I, I flew a, I soloed in a, one, a Cessna 172. And, um, you know, the, after, you know, flying with my instructor for, you know, 10 or 11 hours, I don't remember how long it was. Uh, I was a slow learner. It might've taken 30 or 40 hours. I don't recall. Um, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but really when he says, okay, uh, I'm going to step out, you go take it up. And, and, and you kind of get up and you're like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm really doing this. It's working. It's just like he showed me. And, uh, so we had, it, it was a great feeling and, uh, I still, you know, good memory and uh, of it. And, uh, you know, think about that a lot. It's just like, you're free and you're free of the earth. And, 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 and uh, it's just kind of that whole passion that I have about the industry came out. Did you get the sensation of kind of being a bird and you're just, you're just up there and going. Yeah, a little bit. It, and, 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 you know, I know he told me only, you know, just do three touch and, you know, three touch and goes and then come back. And, and I was more inclined to do five or six because I was, I was in control at that point. So it was, uh, it was, uh, it was, it, it is, you feel just a great sense of freedom and, and you're just up there and you're looking around and you can see for, you know, you know, miles and miles and, and, uh, and, and just, it, it's a completely different perspective when you're up there. For an individual who's never flown before, what is the process like to be certified to, to solo? Yes, no, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. So usually you go through ground school, which is, I, I think it was about, um, 20 or 30 hours of, of classroom time. Uh, you don't have to necessarily take the test, but you know, they recommend it. Uh, but when you, when you go through getting ready to go solo, uh, most, most of the time, most people take around 10 or 15 hours of, of, of training. So you go up, uh, you learn basic handling of the aircraft, how to keep it level, how to trim it, how to control the engine. You have to go through stall testing. So that's, you know, that's quite an experience when you stall the aircraft for the first time and you, you, you take it up and, you know, you, you, you just keep pointing the nose up, keep pointing the nose up, keep pointing the nose up. And then finally, when, when it stalls, then you go through the recovery process. 
and so all of it is about building that foundation and 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 you know practicing all the little skills that you will need when you go fly yourself for the first time and and so even on the first flight the first time i went up i i think i had this assumption that uh, the instructor would take it off and then I'd go, you know, fly it around a little bit and then he'd land it. Uh, but no, the first time he's like, okay, now this is how we're going to take off. And, and he walked you through the steps and he's over there kind of guiding you, but it's you're kind of on your own. And, and, uh, and even, and then, and then as we come back in and land, I'm thinking, well, surely he's not going to let me land, especially after, you know, uh, all of that other work that I was doing. And, and then he's like, okay, now this is what we're going to do to land. And, and I was like, you're talking to me. <laughs> and uh, so it's, uh, but, <laughs> but it is, it's, it, it's, it's a very, it, it's a very structured process and uh, you go through, there's kind of just a number of steps, almost like a checklist that you go through to, to get ready. And, and then, and then, you know, once you feel comfortable and the instructor can kind of see your confidence level and, and uh, how you deal with crosswinds and everything, it's uh, then it's not so bad. So it, by the time you get there, it's actually like, okay, I'm ready to do this. And how come you didn't get out of the airplane four or five hours ago kind of thing? Is the stall process like a roller coaster where your stomach's in your mouth and you're like, oh, oh, yeah, maybe a little bit. It's it's uh, as you're going up, you're just getting slower and slower and slower and and you can feel the controls are starting to get a little bit sluggish because you don't have enough airflow going over them. And then and then it just you know, it kind of drops. It's like one of those rides where you, you, you're going up and all of a sudden you just drop out. And, and it's actually kind of how it felt. And, and then you, you know, then you're like, okay, now what do I got to do? And you're, you're thinking, and so you, you're just, you're, you kind of feel like you're on a hair trigger as you're flying it. And then when it finally releases, it's like, you, now you're like really trying to go as fast as you can. So you're, you're trying to anticipate the whole thing. And so a little bit like a roller coaster. it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a weird sensation. And a lot of people don't, they're not, not comfortable. I'm got to admit, it's like, you know, it's not natural. It doesn't feel comfortable when you're doing it. So it's, it's, uh, you have to just, you have to trust. <laughs> so trust yourself on that one. And speaking of, a, of an uncomfortable feeling, do you have any desires to fly a, a rocket into space? Is that the next thing? So now you're, you're a pilot, you've worked in space. Do you have any desire to, to go up into space? Absolutely. I, I would love to. So, <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, talk to the, you know, when I was my time during my time at the spaceship company and working with Virgin Galactic on the spaceship and, and the pilots, uh, you know, talking to them as they got up to space and just the view that they had, you know, that they were able to see from, you know, like the, all the way tip down of Baja, California up to San Francisco. And, and so in, in the experience, anyone that's gone to space will talk about, what the earth looks like when you go up above and you, and, and you have a much different viewpoint than when you're down here on earth. And so, um, yeah, I definitely, I would love to go to space. And, you know, I think if, uh, there was a hotel up there, that would be, you know, one of my destinations that I'd want to go hit and spend a couple of days up there. So, uh, now, you know, you know, uh, my wife might feel a little differently, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, I definitely would love to do that. And the way technology is evolving, you never know. We might hit 2001 A Space Odyssey. We'll, we'll leave Hal at home, but we'll take yeah. that beautiful hotel that they had up there. Yeah, I, I think it just, I don't know. It just feels like it's a matter of time. Uh, I, I think as you, you know, again, you see all this private investment uh, in space and, and, and there are small efforts to, you know, there are some efforts to try to actually establish that hotel in space. And, you know, certainly I think as... Uh, you know, as, as the companies start getting regular uh, space tourism, uh, that seems like it starts to become a next logical step. People are like, okay, now what can I do to stay up here for a day or two? And, you know, I got my, I, I got my five or 10 minutes of weightlessness. Now I want, I want more. And so I, I, I it just feels like it becomes more commercially viable as, as the, as the industry matures. When the Virgin Galactic uh, paying to, uh, space passengers go up, how high will they go and how long will they stay up there? Is it 30 seconds, one minute of weightlessness? The target is to get to 100 kilometers and um, you know, the technology is certainly there. So you're, you're up, up in the definition of space, you know, uh, 50 to 60 miles is the common definition of space. And so the amount of time that they're weightless is, um, I think it's around, you know, four or five minutes uh, because you're on a you're on a ballistic trajectory. So once the 
once the rocket motor turns off, you're 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 now coasting, and so the the pilots, you know, the passengers are effectively weightless at that point. And then as you you hit the the apogee, um, you know, as you hit the peak or the highest highest altitude, then you know, as you start to come back down, then gravity starts to take over again. So then you start to be you know start to feel that deceleration as you're coming back into the atmosphere. So so, but I think they get about five minutes, which I think would be like fantastic i mean you, the guys you know the the, the scientists and the people when they go on the, the the vomit comets you know the that do the parabolic arcs and and they i think they get like 20 or 30 seconds of weightless time and you know people speak like that's ah, quite an experience you know so you know think about you know multiply that times 10 and uh, it's it's a much better experience so all at once yeah. And when you were leading the engineering teams working on Spaceship Two and White Knight Two, were you thinking about the possibility one day millions of individuals, such as yourselves, might be able to experience space for the first time? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you know, uh, Sir Richard Branson's you know you know goal of uh, you know opening up space for the good of the world uh, is is you know I, I truly think that that is it's it's on we are on the way to that happening, and uh, and and yeah, I, I think you know, millions of people. And just when you think about, you know, even from our company, we used to have a, um, you know, a, kind of a big poster board on the wall where all of our future astronauts were coming from. And, and they were from all over the globe. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it just every country you can imagine, there were people that had signed up to be participants in this. So uh, certainly, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a matter of time. <laughs> so, uh, that we'll, we, you know, we, that's what, that was always our focus was how do we help, uh, people get to space and, and, you know, get their own astronaut wings. So. And it seems to me that once individuals get into space, they could have this aha moment that can go on to change the world. They're looking up there and they're looking down at the world and, and realize really how small the world really is. They can have this aha moment and some great, invention could be thought of there or something that could go on to change the world. Any thoughts on that when you're peering down and looking at space? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, obviously having, not having done it myself, but, you know, imagining what that's like and listening to what people have seen is you, you do get the sense that the world is, it looks smaller than you expected. And you get the sense of scale and, and, and you realize, you know, you know, that, that there's a connection across the entire world. And you can see, you know, when you see satellite photos even of different areas and, and you can see the impact of, of different events. And, uh, and so it's, um, so I do think that, you know, people will think a little bit, you know, those people will think a little bit more differently about the world. Um, there's certainly a lot of, um, you know, kind of uh, touching technologies, the related technologies that will come out of that. And, and some of the efforts, a lot of the efforts also include that space exploration or the space science piece of it as well. So, you know, even, even at Virgin, we were talking about, you know, you know, doing, being able to do scientific payloads that, you know, so it opens up new technologies, new possibilities for people uh, to, to really, you know, just do new things. I think it, you know, for, for people that grew up during the Apollo landings, um, they were, inspired by the science and the technology that came out of that. And, and I think that some of these current efforts that you see, and, you know, you'll see that again, I, the, um, you know, when SpaceX launched the, uh, you know, the crew up to the International Space Station here a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, we were, you know, my wife and I, and my family and I, and my, um, uh, my brother, you know, brother-in-law and their family, uh, we were, we were actually at the zoo. And so we stopped and we pulled it up on our phones and we watched, uh, the space launch and uh, SpaceX launch, because it's so cool. There were a lot of people around us doing the same thing. And so I think this is the kind of, these are the kinds of things that inspire people to, to really be creative and, and to be more innovative. And so it's, uh, I, I do think that this can help usher in a new era of, uh, of interest in science and technology. I, I fully agree with you. So I, I live in South Florida 
and my wife and my daughter, we went out to the, the beach to see because sometimes uh, it's not cloudy. <laughs> we can see it. And we're out there and there must be 100 people and we can't yeah. see it. And we all have our iPhones and our iPads watching the launch. Yep. And my daughter's like, Daddy, that's really cool. Can I get a space costume? And I was like, of course you can. <laughs> and then we ordered a book about space, uh, a learning book about space. And that's the whole new thing. And I was like, Daddy, there's planets yep. out there. Yep. But it's yep. just really amazing how it's one of these events that can go on and spark something in a child's mind to change it. Yep. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, my son's the same way. He, my son was 10 months old when he went to the first flight of the Scorpion. So he, he's grown up around airplanes. And when we, uh, when I was working at the spaceship company, I lived in Tehachapi, California, and, uh, it's up in the mountains and you could see the, the launches from, uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base. So there'd be SpaceX and Atlas launches and you'd see these. And, and so if at nighttime you could see them. And so we'd go out at, you know, one o'clock in the morning and you, you watch the watch the launch on our phone and then you could see it get up in the air and and you could see it for you could watch it for a couple of minutes and it was it was fascinating and uh it does it's i, I love it and uh it, it, a lot of people are interested and and then i realized that there were actually like thousands of people in the area doing it because they were all posting about it then on on social media so uh it's, i guess it wasn't just me <laughs> so <laughs> It's going to be incredible with with your son and my daughter as they go and explore the world and how yeah. science will play a large role because they're both exposed to yeah, it. Absolutely. And that's going to be fascinating. And throughout your career, there's been a common trend of simulation. Yes. What role has that played in allowing your customers at Siemens to develop best-in-class products? Yeah, I think that's uh, it, it. It really makes a lot of difference. Uh, I've you know, as you said, I've, I've used simulation for most of my career. Uh, we've used it to improve products. We've used it to reduce uh, the amount of time that we have to do testing. So that's what our customers are seeing today. When they're using our simulation products, uh, if it's, for example, if it's CFD, they're, they're being able to look at different designs for rotors of a, you know, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. So they're, they're being able to design quieter systems. They're being able to design more efficient systems. And we see this throughout with all of our simulation activities. They're able to design it right the first time. It's, it's, they have a better chance of that first pass yield if you, um, if you kind of think about it that way for their designs. And then they're able to test it virtually. And that the simulations are, are becoming so accurate and they're, you know, they're, as they match those, uh, you know, as they match those simulations to the real world, um, they're, they're able to test their designs and make sure that they're right, or they're able to make sure that they can build it properly with manufacturing simulations. And, and then when they get into the actual test program, you, you don't necessarily completely eliminate the test program, but you maybe find errors, um, errors, probably the wrong word, but you find things that you should change before you go into the testing program. So you fit, you address those items, but because you've been able to look at the full envelope in the virtual world, you're now able to, um, really make your, physical test program more effective. So you can go focus on the areas where, hey, okay, we're seeing a little bit of concern here and then we're just gonna spot check everything. So instead of just using kind of a, a peanut butter approach and you're just testing the whole flight envelope uh, for, you know, um, you know, kind of equally, uh, and then saying, okay, now we gotta go focus an area. You, you, you know, go into your test program. This is where we're gonna go uh, make the best use of our testing. And um, so I think it makes your testing a lot more effective and in some cases, you can actually reduce the amount of testing. So it's customers are seeing a lot of benefit with simulation and 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 it's electrical, mechanical, CFD. It's it's everything. And being more effective is that naturally leading to cost savings? Absolutely. It's you know I think anytime you can get it right the first time, uh, you can see significant cost savings. And so we're seeing you know some of our customers. Uh, they go through this for the first time and they save I don't know 20, 25, 30 percent of their time. That's that's a pretty significant amount of time. And then their simulation gets better. And so the next time they go through it, they save, you know, you know, save 20% of their time again. And so over time, you start to see some just truly breakthrough transformations. It's it's uh the, you know, using the digital digital uh, enterprise and, and the simulation that supports it, um, you can see transformational results over time and as you run through multiple product designs. And so um, significant cost savings, significant time savings. But, you know, I think another area where a lot of people, you know, tend to overlook is just, you know, 
the systems, the products that we're designing are so complex now. And to be able to have confidence of how the, uh, how the system is going to work or how, the, how your vehicle or your product is going to work before you start committing to flight test uh, is, is, a big, is a big savings as well. It avoids a lot of risks and a lot of costs and schedule overruns if you're managing a program. Um, and, you know, and I talked to some companies and, and we experienced this as well when I was leading uh, different programs uh, that sometimes you just struggle to hire enough people. It's, it's, you know, the, as, as the, you know, there's various charts that show like, well, as complexity goes up, the number of engineers and scientists that you need working on the product also goes up. And, and the problem is, is that it's just hard to go hire those people and hire them in a timely enough manner. So a lot of our simulation tools can actually help companies be successful. So instead of hiring, you know, need to go out and hire 500 people, maybe they only hire 200 people. And, and, you know, so pick a number, but, but, you know, you, you, you get so many benefits from a cost and time savings and just a general productivity enhancement. Uh, it really helps companies be more effective with the people that they have. That's really interesting. Could you share an example throughout your distinguished career of where simulation played a large role in getting a project off the ground? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, and this this one goes back a ways, but uh, one of the things that we did when I was at uh, Cessna Aircraft Company is is we uh, we were using we were looking at how do we reduce the amount of hours that we spend on our flight testing of autopilot systems. And so traditionally, you know, they might take you know a couple hundred hours of flight testing, and and um, and and that takes calendar time. It, you know, so you have a, a fairly big effort. And so what we were able to do. And this was uh, using, you know, uh, we were able to simulate um, uh, simulate our, uh, our aerodynamics. Uh, we were able to simulate some of the flight controls. Uh, we also built some hardware in the loop. And we were, we were able to, act, to develop the autopilot system uh, on the ground. And then when we took it into the flight test, uh, it, was, it was pretty accurate right out of the box. So when we went into the flight test, uh, we, you know, we, we were able to, you know, significantly reduce uh, the amount of time that we spent on flight tests. You know, we've maybe cut, easily cut 50% of our flight test time out, um, out of that program because it, the, the accuracy of the simulations were good enough now, um, you know, to, 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 to really replicate what was going on in the airplane. And so we got great results out of it now. And you, so now fast forward, you know, that was, um, you know, uh, you know, to date myself, that was 20 years ago. Um, but the tools that we sell today, you know, that, that we have available to us today are so much more powerful now, uh, that I think, you know, people are even getting better results and, um, out of it, um, than, um, you know, with, the, with the new tools. So they're able to see, you know, pretty significant results and they maybe don't have to invest quite as much as we did. When you refer to flight testing simulation, I ref uh, put it in simple terms that I would understand. Are you kind of referring to flight simulator, the old game that everybody tried to land on the aircraft carrier? But on Not, a big commercial yeah, level, uh, so so on different so different levels. So companies do, um, uh, they do. You know, we we were doing like flight simulators, like you're describing there, uh, where it was the pilot in the loop and 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 flying it. But we also did we also did simulators where uh, we did a lot of simulations that were just of a of a simple uh, of a single system. Maybe like your flight control system, your hydraulic system, your fuel system. And, and we could, we were, we look at, and our customers today are looking at this all the time. They're looking at their fuel system. They never even build a Ironbird anymore. They don't have to build a fuel system test article because they're able to replicate it so accurately that they don't, they, they, they don't necessarily have to build the test article uh, to prove their system out. And so, uh, you know, if, if you're looking at a company that's, you know, developing a new aircraft and they don't have to build a fuel system Ironbird, they don't have to spend you know, I don't know, five, $10 million on, on, you know, on, on building uh, the fuel system and, and then all the work that goes into actually testing it. If, the, if they're able to jet, um, uh, you know, meet those objectives with, without developing that, that test article, uh, that's a huge time savings for them. And then, you know, so, and, and I think that's the benefit that a lot of our customers are seeing. So it's not just the flight simulators, like, like you say, landing your uh, fighter jet on the aircraft carrier, but, but it is just, sometimes it's, it's more of a, integrated testing or, um, an individual system. Um, and, and so, you know, or connecting multiple individual systems together so that you can see how they interact and you may never actually put a pilot in a seat and have them, 
have him do demonstrated landings and his and you know show off his proficiency. So, so is is it fair to say simulation plays a very large role in aerospace development today? Absolutely. I think I, I think that you know from early concept design phases where you're going through this multi-domain optimization. So you have a set of requirements for the customer. You don't necessarily know what the airplane even looks like yet. Uh, and then you're able to look at, you know, you know, a hundred different configurations of your airplane before you and, and settle on what you think is the best configuration. So you're able to look at all these different options fast, and then you're able to uh, select and, and have confidence that you've done the best job, you know, that you've optimized to the best design possible. And, and then throughout the rest of the process, you're able to use simulation in place of actual physical testing in some cases, um, or at least, as I mentioned earlier, to significantly reduce the amount of physical testing that you need to do. And so I think that's, um, you know, throughout the process, I, you know, we're, we're, I think we're entering an era where you're going to, you, with the tools that we have available to us today, where you can actually start having a conversation about virtual verification, maybe even virtual certification with the, uh, with the certification authorities. So. Uh, it's, it's, it has a big role today and it's a growing role. Virtual certification to me seems like that would just be completely game changing. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and so today we're, we're, you know, we're at this point where you're using this hybrid model of a lot of virtual verification with very focused physical testing, uh, to, 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 you know, prove out the models, uh, and, and demonstrate that the, 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 the simulation models are correct. Uh, and then on some of those most critical test points, you you go off and you can demonstrate those. And and so I think it, it's it's already been a game changer. It's it's on how companies are going through their certification programs. And if you could ever get there where it's you know in, you know instead of maybe being thirty percent virtual and where you could be eighty or you know maybe even ninety percent virtual, um, that that would be you know the rate of product development you know would accelerate you know significantly. So. Um, instead of doing 10 years to do a program, maybe it now takes seven. I mean, those are the kinds of game-changing numbers I think that we can start talking about. Those game-changing numbers as an investor would seem to me that you would get a lot more private capital that would would flow in yeah. if it's a lot yeah. faster to commercialize and get an ROI. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think part of it today as well is that uh, if you're an investor and you you you, you invest in one of these projects, that uh, anytime there's a problem, uh, there's always a risk that something, you know, doesn't necessarily, uh, go as well as you expected. Now you have to do a design change or you have to respond to this problem. Now you have a cost and schedule overrun. So now, you know, now the investors are, you know, there's risk to the money that they put into the, to that investment. And so with simulation, you're able to address a lot of that risk before, you know, faster. So it, it gives the investor confidence that you can, you know, maybe you're not going to run it necessarily a lot faster than the other programs, but you're going to have a better chance of executing on that schedule. So there's just so many facets that the simulation can help with uh, in terms of not just in time and schedule, but also just in risk management. Simulation's cool. Yes, it is. I I love it. <laughs> so we, we've gone through aerospace. We've gone through space. We've, we've had an interesting, wonderful conversation about simulation. Let's put all this together. What do you think the future of commercial aerospace is, both from uh, just regular planes and going into space with spacecrafts? Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, I, I do see uh, there's probably you're going to see a lot of growth in the high speed point to point uh, and, and not just the supersonic flight, but maybe even hypersonic flight. Uh, you know, there's, there's private investors, there's companies that are wanting to invest in uh, you know, can I go from London to Sydney in, in, in an hour? And, and so I think that you're going to see continued investment in high speed point, you know, flight, both supersonic, maybe even hypersonic, uh, or near space. Um, and, and then, but you're also going to see, you know, there's such this explosion with the electric propulsion and the urban air taxi models. And so, you know, if you think about, how you, you know, how you transport today. If you want to go from like, say Los Angeles, your home in Los Angeles to your home in London, I'm sorry, in New York, um, you're going to take a car to the airport. You're going to take an airplane. You're going to then take another car to where your destination is. And now you, you start to think about this, this different mobility of, 
you take this, you, you take a, an air taxi to the airport. So now instead of driving three hours, you fly 30 minutes and then you go high speed to New York in two hours instead of six. And, 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 you know, now it just changes how you spend, instead of spending a day traveling, you spend a morning traveling. And, and I, th- I think that's going to be one of the areas that we see a lot of. And then as we were talking about with space, I think just this, the, you know, we're on the cusp of seeing this commercial space tourism really, I think, take off. Uh, I'm an optimist about it. I, I think, you know, there's, there's teams out there doing a lot of great work. And, uh, and, you know, so I, I think, you know, we're, you're going to start to see that take off and, and the technologies, uh, you know, especially on high speed, they, t- they tend to overlap a little bit as well. So uh, there might even be some, um, you know, some kind of crosstalk between those two, uh, two areas of, of technology. You're right about air taxi on an earlier episode of the SAE podcast. We had Mark Moore who talked all about his NASA puff and paper and broke it down in great detail. So I was like, okay, this is really real. You're the gentleman that wrote the paper. So really happy to hear you say that. For our listeners, could you kind of dive in for what hypersupersonic is, hypersonic flight? Yeah, so you know, supersonic flight is usually considered anything over Mach 1, the speed of sound, up to uh, like Mach 3 or 4. I think hypersonic, the, uh, the technical definition is, you know, Mach 5 or Mach 6 and above. Uh, so I think it's just the, 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 the challenges there that you have is obviously propulsion just to get there going fast enough. Uh, you've got to, it, it takes a fair amount of thrust to make that happen. But then, you know, from the design of the vehicles, there's different structural forces that, you know, that you have to take into account, not just when you go supersonic, but then when you go to the next level. Uh, but then the biggest challenge might be just the thermal management that the, 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 the skins of the airplane, uh, are, are going to heat up. And so you have to be able to model that. And so, you know, that's, uh, I know that a lot of the, a lot of our customers that are using, uh, you know, our, 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 you know, some of our simulation tools and our analysis tools, uh, a lot of it's based on thermal modeling of just, you know, the heat on the, you know, how does your surfaces heat up? um on your aircraft is you know and then from electrical standpoint obviously how do you manage the thermal you know thermal management of all your systems all the electrical systems on the aircraft so it's uh it's kind of twofold and uh but that that thermal piece is is a pretty big deal uh there's you might you know they recall the story of the valkyrie uh the xb70 uh flight test aircraft that was developed it was a supersonic bomber that was developed in the um um in the um you know in the 60s and the first time, I think it was one of the first times I took it up and flew at really high speed, came back, was missing a lot of paint because of the, the thermal expansion of the airplane. It actually like, you know, um, caused some of the paint to come off because the airplane expanded so much. And even the SR-71, they talk about how much it grew in flight because of the thermal heating. So the airplane actually got a little bit bigger. And uh, so it's, and so managing that uh, is a pretty tough uh uh, it, it, it's, it's a pretty tough problem to solve. And so it's, you know, it's, again, that's where our customers are able to use tools, uh, some of our solutions for, for managing that. And that's a great segue to the, to, the, to the defense industry. We spoke about the commercial aerospace industry, and I want to ask you about the defense aerospace industry. What trends are you starting to see emerge now and then over the next 5 to 10 to 15 years coming out of the defense aerospace yeah, no, absolutely. Well, obviously, I think one of the easy trends is what's going on with the DoD right now on their digital enterprise. They want to, uh, um, you know, they're 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 making this transition. They're trying to change how they acquire new programs, how they innovate faster, and how they bring new technology to market faster. and And they're doing it using digital digital uh, transformation. They want the digital twin, and and they want you know this open agile frameworks, and and so they're they're looking how do they go faster. Um, that's certainly one of the big trends. I think that, so, you know, that will change how you do acquisition. Um, but then I think you're also going to be seeing more, you know, continue to see more emphasis on sustainment. Uh, sustainability would be a big piece of it that, you know, how do they operate uh, more efficiently, more effectively. Um, and the sustainment model is also important because when you think about the life cycle of these products, they're, they're 30, 40, 50 years. And so, you know, it's not just the development cost of the product, but just how much does it cost as you operate it in the field? So I think you're going to continue to see more emphasis on how do you bring that cost of operations down through a uh, more reliable products, easier to maintain products, more fuel efficient products. And so uh, I think those are all going to be big factors as you go forward in defense. With sustainability, will the fuels change? 
will that whole will that have to be reimagined? Uh, well, I, I think you're starting to see some of that already with the fuels changing. Um, but uh, you know, where they're at least looking at uh, using you know like biofuels, for example, there there have been a lot of studies on that. I do think that just like you're starting to see in commercial aerospace with this move towards electric, uh, or at least with hybrid, I think you'll start. You know, I think there'll start to be some investigations in that with uh, uh, with the um, you know, with with uh, with the uh, Defense Department as well. That those those solutions are maybe more sustainable. Um, you know, they give you a different answer, and you know, and you look at the um, you know even the Air Force, they're they're investing um, in some of these. Um, some of these projects for electric aircraft as well, so that uh, they see the benefit, and so they're they're helping commercial industry out uh, with projects that would uh, potentially help uh, help the uh, U.S. Air Force or the Department of Defense in the future. So maybe I'm not being you know you know too too go out too, going out too far on a limb because uh, you can see some of the current trends that are happening already. But it's fair enough to say the future's cool. And hopefully yes. one day you're going to get your space hotel and your wife will give you permission to go up there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and and I'd just love to thank you, Dale, for coming on the SAE podcast and having this wonderful conversation about simulation and how simulation allows you to innovate faster. And we talked about space and, and aero. And this was just a wonderful conversation about everything in aerospace. And just thank you. Thank you so much. This was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Grayson. And this has been a really fun conversation. I appreciate your time today. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.